Turn to John chapter 21, and those words we read earlier, and uh, somebody was saying to me, they were asking me this morning where I was going to be this evening, because the advert said, Liam Gallagher gone fishing. But I'm here. I thought it was a good title until, of course, it was twisted by some people. Uh, Typical. Well, we're come. We're nearing the end of this uh, great study in John's Gospel. Nowhere near in depth as in depth as Dr. Boyce did. This has been a superficial overview of the book. Only a hundred sermons, not three hundred or however many. Uh, but you've got the books there. You can get the volumes. There are four volumes of John's Gospel. I remember getting them as they came out, and. Uh, you can get the in-depth insight. But we'll, we'll, we'll return to our superficial approach this evening. We're going to deal with a fairly large chunk at the end of the book, beginning really in chapter 20 and verse 20. Because at the end of, uh, in between the, the previous section where Jesus and Thomas uh, are confronting each other, and Thomas it makes that great declaration of faith and worship, my Lord, and my God, placed in there, there's a statement about the purpose of the book. At least that's the way it's entitled in the ESV. And uh, it reads like this. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples. That is, in his risen life, he did this in the six-week period that he was with them between his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. He did many things which were not written. Or perhaps it applies to the whole of his career. It would apply equally to the whole of his career. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, that is, with the witness of the disciples, that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, what John is saying to us is that in all that he has written in this book, and it's a pretty long book in the New Testament, he has been making a selection. He has written down, he has not written down all that he knows about Jesus. He says as much. He says there were many other signs that Jesus did. What John has done is select from those signs some that are illustrative of others in order that he might give to us an account of the life of Jesus, in order that he might teach us something of the significance of that life in relation to God, first of all. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that when you write the biography of someone who has died, if you're telling the story of someone who's died, you want to give them as much information as you possibly can. You want to recall every little detail. You want, to, you want people to remember what it was like when they, had, when they were having a picnic one day over here or, or what they were doing when they went into the city on another occasion and so on. And there's many of those details. You get one or two perhaps in the Gospels, but you don't get too many of them. And the reality of that is, or the, the reason for that is, that when someone is still alive, you don't feel the need to fill in a lot of the color or the detail. We don't in our everyday conversation. We just say one or two things about them, 
because the person we're talking to may get to know them, may get to meet them, may find out more about them, because uh, they're still alive. And so what we find in the gospel writings is that these people are writing about Jesus, and they're selective in what they tell us, because Jesus is still alive, and you may meet him, and you may come to know him as we know him. You may come into a relationship with him. There's absolutely no escaping the fact that for John and for the apostles, Jesus is alive, and they are introducing us to their own dear living Lord. But the other thing that's emphasized in that little section is that these signs were given in the presence of the apostles, those whom Jesus had chosen to be with him throughout that three-year period of his earthly life and ministry. It was absolutely crucial to the Christian faith that there be those who are credible eyewitnesses to the events that took place, earwitnesses to the words that were spoken. That is absolutely crucial for Christian declarations and claims that they should be firmly based on true history that happened. Merely people saying, I've had an experience of Jesus, or I have a testimony of what Jesus means to me, is not the kind of basis on which to build Christian faith. At the end of the day, testimony, Christian testimony, and Christian witness is the witness of the apostles who had been there, done that, got the t-shirt, I was with Jesus. That's why we listen to them. That's why people took notice of them, the book of Acts tells us. They took notice of them that they had been with Jesus. When these apostles started doing the kinds of things Jesus did, when they performed the kind of miracles that Jesus did, when they were doing them in a multiplicity of way even more so than Jesus had done, people took note of them that they had been with Jesus. And not only that, but we can go further. These things were written, we're told, and when, Paul, when, when John says these are written, he is using a formula there that is a formula comes from the Old Testament about the writing of the Scripture. These things are written. Jesus often asks people, how is it written? And the use of this expression leads us to understand that these men, as they were writing, understood that they were writing Holy Scripture. They were writing the Word of God down for us. And we have this word from them. The, the written Scripture of the New Testament, like the Old Testament, is given to us through the apostles, the holy apostles, who were the witnesses of Jesus Christ. And why is the Scripture given to us? Do you see the answer in verse 20 and, uh, 30 and 31 of chapter 20? What is the answer? It is this. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Why is the Bible in your hands this evening? Why has God given you the Bible? Whether you're not a Christian or whether you are a Christian, here's the reason that you might believe. And understand that when the Bible talks about believing, it always means believing that. Blank, blank, blank. It means believing something. 
believing in something, believing a message. What are the things that we are to believe? We are to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the long-expected, long-promised one, the Messiah of Israel. He is the one who would come into the world as the servant of the Lord to accomplish the work of God in the world. And it is believing that Jesus is the Son of God. That is, that he is by nature God. That is, that he is the glory of God. John has spelt this out for us. The word that was with God and the word that was face to face with God, the word that was in the beginning, the word that is God, is the Son who comes from the Father. And when you take those two things together, that is what you have to believe. If you believe the Scriptures, you believe that Jesus is the Messiah in his earthly life and is the eternal Son of God in his divine nature. So they believed, these people believed, that Jesus was the Messiah, but the people of the Jews did not believe that. They believed that there was a Messiah coming, but they did not believe that the Messiah would be God the Son. Now, in understanding what's being said here, you understand that the controlling thought now of the rest of this book is the word of Thomas back in verse 28. When Thomas sees the wounds in Jesus' hands and side, he comes to the only conclusion that lies before him, and it's this. My Lord and my God, you cannot think rightly of Jesus Christ unless you see him not only as the human Messiah, but as the divine Son who comes from the Father. John Newton once wrote this hymn, What think you of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme, that is, where you stand before God and how you think about God. You cannot be right in the rest until you think rightly of him. That makes our Christology, what we believe about Jesus, up front and center in our thinking as believers. Now, why is it important? that the Messiah should not only be descended from David and be a human being, why is it important that he should also be the Son of God, the Divine Son? Well, the reason is this. We are, what we need is a certain kind of Messiah. Not just the Savior who can save us from the Romans or from earthly enemies, We need a Messiah who can save us from sin and death. And it's only because he was by very nature God that the human Jesus could save us from our sin. Now that's the background then to this last and longest appearance of the resurrected Lord Jesus recorded in John's Gospel and indeed of all of the Gospels. He's already told us that Jesus had appeared twice before. He's only selected these appearances. There were many, many others, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. But now he mentions this third appearance. And if we consider the order of the appearances so far, it's evident that in the first appearance on the first day, the day of resurrection, 
to all of the disciples. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit to underline his authority over them. In the second appearance, he shows them, he shows Thomas his, his hands and his side, the wounds in his hands and side, in order to confirm to them that though he's now glorious and glorified, he's the same person who died before their gaze and that God is now raised from the dead. And now in this third appearance, he's going to show them the reality of his risen human nature. Now you can see it as we walk through the passage. There are three notes sounded, I think, in this record. There's the note of authenticity here. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. After everything the evangelist has just narrated, he comes and he appears to them again. In other words, Jesus was not continuously appearing to them. During this six-week period between his resurrection and his ascension, uh, he was not with them continuously. He came to them at intervals because he's teaching them that though he is alive, he has not risen with the same life as he had before. Now it is with a glorious life, like the angels, whose dwelling is not with the flesh, as it says in Daniel chapter 2. He does not now live with the flesh. He does not live on this side of the sun. He does not live under the sun. He has been glorified. And there is a certain place that has been created for the glorified. We call it heaven. God created that space, uh, waiting the day when he would recreate the universe. And we would live in a renewed, perfected world. So Christ comes occasionally to them. But what happens is placed very firmly among the resurrection narratives. Jesus appeared to them. It is the nature and power of a glorified body that it can be seen or not seen as the person wishes by non-glorified bodies. That's what it means when it says reveal. Christ made himself appear. He appeared instantly. To their view, he's there one minute, gone the next. He's not there one minute, and he's there the next. In the, in the blinking of an eye, or in the twinkling of an eye. And that's the way he appeared to them during those 40 days. The place he appears to them is by the Sea of Tiberias, named after the city of Tiberias, built by in honor of Tiberius Caesar. And the evangelist tells us that because the disciples had been told to go into Galilee and that the Lord Jesus was going before them into Galilee. I think the other reason that it's mentioned is that it seems by this stage that the Lord had banished their fears. They're no longer hiding. They leave the city and they go to Galilee, but they're, they go together. They don't go like a, a brood of haunted and, and sought-after men. They go back to Galilee where more, many of them come from, and there Jesus will manifest Himself to them. Only seven names are mentioned there, but the names are mentioned so that you know the people that you can go to 
In the days in which the book was written, you could go to these people and ask them, were you there? And they would tell you that, yes, they were there. They're selected not because seven is the perfect number, though uh, the ancients used to think there was something in that, and perhaps we will learn from them when we get to heaven that there was. But, But I think, essentially, it's underlining the fact that the church is not complete here, but those who are there are a foundation of what the church is going to be. Now, what strikes us is that when they got there, there's this very human reaction. They're back in home territory. They have time in their hands. They've been told to wait until Jesus comes to them. They've been told, I've gone ahead of you to Galilee. So they go to Galilee and they don't see him. And there they are hanging out. They've been through a period of enormous emotional, psychological, and spiritual tension. You can only imagine what they've been through over these past few weeks. And it's against that background that Peter takes the initiative and proposes a fishing trip. And the others are unanimous. There's every, every, everything about the text suggests that this was quite spontaneous. There was no big plan. There was no preparation involved. They just said, well, let's go fishing. That's what we know to do. That's what we were trained as. But the problem is, of course, that we're not satisfied with that. We, we want to speculate. Why did they do this? Was there some other motivation behind what they do? And it's very interesting to, to read what people come up with. Were they feeling weird because they had nothing to do after had had a period of frenetic activity during the three years they'd been with Jesus in his earthly ministry? Now they have time in their hands. What are they going to do? And they're bored out their minds. So Peter says, let's go fishing. Did they do it because they needed some money? They needed to catch the fish so they could sell the fish and raise some money to support themselves. Or, Or here's another thing that I read this week. Somebody said, Remember Peter? Peter, a couple of weeks prior to this, has done something he never thought he would do. He denied the Lord three times. Peter is no doubt frustrated, disappointed, embarrassed, and ashamed. And Peter and the other disciples are in Galilee because Jesus told them to go there, and there they are waiting. And Peter thinks, well, I've been a failure as a disciple, but I'm good as a fisherman. Let's go fishing. Well, I don't think any of those things are the reasons, because... Why are they not the reasons? Well, I hope you're learning that if it's not in the Bible, then it's above our pay grade to speculate what the reasons were. So I spent all that time in this sermon as wasted time telling you that none of these reasons are of any good whatsoever. They went fishing. Why wouldn't they go fishing? That's what they did. Well, we go on to discover that they went fishing, but, and they fished all night long, and they caught nothing. That was unusual. That was very unusual. These were seasoned fishermen. They hadn't been doing it for a while, of course, you could argue, but, but they were seasoned fishermen. They knew how to fish, and they'd been working all night long. By the time you get to the morning, I'm sorry to embarrass anybody here. Fortunately, it's not on camera, but uh, or, or, or anything, but, but Peter has stripped off because of the energetic work of working with the nets. All night long, they were exhausted by the morning, and they caught nothing. You know, there are times in life when frustrations come, and there are times in life when things don't go according to plan, 
There are providences in our lives that seem to go contrary to all that we'd hoped for, all that we'd prayed for, all that we'd dreamed would be the case. And we wonder why. And our minds race to find explanations for these things. We're unsatisfied just to, to, in a sense, accept the fact that things in life don't always go according to plan. But also we're reluctant to see things against the bigger picture. These men at the end of this day, they're exhausted. They've tried hard. They've been working all night. But they've caught nothing. And then as day was breaking, we read, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. That's important. As the first flush of dawn approached, as things were becoming visible, there they saw a figure standing on the beach. Another one of these sudden, unexplained standing incidents that we've read about already in verse 14, verse 19, and verse 26. There he is, and like Mary Magdalene back in chapter 20, they did not recognize the Lord. It's also normal in some ways, so authentic. But then secondly, there's a note of authority. Jesus hails them from the shore. They probably weren't too far away. We we read later they weren't too far away from shore, so he was able to shout to them. Children, do you have any fish? That word, children, the diminutive, was not a very common form of address. It highlights a kind of paternal, fatherly feeling of Jesus towards these men. They were all the same age as him, of course, in human terms, similar age. But as the resurrected Lord now, he is speaking to them from a different perspective. Children, he says, do you have any fish? And in this fatherly expression, we see something unique about the Lord Jesus. The Father has given him children. Jesus says that. Now, you understand that within the Godhead, only the Father is the Father. But there's a sense in which the Son acts in a fatherly way towards his people. I think that's really what is being got at in those titles you find in Isaiah chapter 9 when it calls him the everlasting Father. He is not the Father, but he acts in a fatherly way towards his children that the, the Father has given to him. These many sons and daughters that he is bringing in to glory. And he treats them in a gentle way. Do you have any fish? And they give a very articulate reply. No. Okay. Quite straightforward. And it's then that Jesus' word of power is spoken. They don't know it's a word of power. They think it's the advice of some stranger on the shore. Thought for a musical interlude right there, stranger on the shore. It will be lost to many 
under 70. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now throughout this gospel, we find Jesus consistently acting with power and with absolute authority. And what happens next is set in the context of their obedience to Jesus' command. Jesus said, try the right side and you'll catch some. And almost without, with smooth transition from the frustration they felt, they do what he commands. They find themselves unable not to do what he commands. They, they, they don't even think in terms of command. They just listen to this man tell them what to do. And, and it seems that he's right in telling them what to do. And so they do what he tells them. And his word of command becomes a word of power. Throughout this gospel, Jesus speaks and things happen. Jesus says, Lazarus. And dead for four days, Lazarus gets out of the tomb. When Jesus speaks, there is power. When Jesus says to these men, drop your nets on the right side of the ship, there is a harvest, a huge harvest of fish. The boat is nearly sinking with the fish. It is an enormous catch. And they can't even drag the nets Out of the water, so many fish have leapt into the nets. When Jesus says, cast your nets and you'll catch fish, the fish are fighting each other to get into that net to obey their creator. That's the power of the word of Jesus. Now, what is the significance of that? Is there a significance to that? Given the context that we have in the rest of this chapter where Jesus has equipped his, his men to be his apostles and to be his proclaimers. And he's reminded them of their great business, which is to open the, key, the gates of the kingdom to those who repent and believe the gospel. There may very well be a connection here with the apostles' great commission to preach the gospel. Very likely, it's a symbol of the effective authorization and the promise of the risen one that he will keep them and that they will bring a harvest of people into the kingdom of God. It may be in the bigger context of John's gospel going back to chapter 17 when Jesus prays for those who will believe in me through their witness, that is through the apostolic witness. The apostolic witness is in the New Testament. It's the New Testament witness to Jesus. And whenever we preach the Bible, whenever we preach the Word of God to men and women, whenever we proclaim the good news of the gospel from the Holy Scriptures, what we're doing is we are relaying the apostolic message. And whenever somebody becomes a Christian, wherever they are in the world, for the last 2,000 years, they have become a Christian on the basis of the apostolic witness. They come to believe in me, Jesus says, through their witness. And it was Jesus who forged the link between fishing for people and fishing for fish. You will be fishers of men. And it may very well be that that is the connection that we have to draw here, that this enormous quantity of fish that they caught is a kind of 
symbol to them and to us that this is what God is going to do through them. All the nations of the earth will bless themselves because you have obeyed my voice. Or the words in Revelation, Behold a multitude which no man could number, coming into the net of the gospel, as it were, coming to the Savior, coming into the fold of God's elect. And this amazing miracle that Jesus performed of getting the fish into the net is the miracle that he is performing every day all over the world to countless people as they are brought into a living, lively faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. You see, there's a meta-narrative that runs throughout the Bible that the Lord is the Lord of life. Life where it's impossible for life to exist. In the beginning, God created out of nothing everything that exists. When Sarah is too old to have a child, God graciously creates in her womb a child. When Israel is enslaved in Egypt and they're under the mighty uh, tyranny of the Egyptian powers without any chance of being freed, the Lord intervenes and delivers his people. When David is facing Goliath and the armies of the Philistines are overwhelming, God graciously and lovingly provides victory through David. When Ezekiel is preaching to a bunch of old dry bones, And those bones come together and are clothed with flesh and then come alive. It is the work of the Word of God. The Word of God has authority to accomplish the will of God. Not only in this miracle here, but in the miracle of many who come into the kingdom of God. Well, the third thing is that there's a note of adequacy here. Peter or John, rather, is the first to recognize Jesus. It is the Lord, John says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. We know him by what he can do. We've seen it often enough. It is the Lord. They don't recognize him. They recognize his works before they realize who it is. Because they're not expecting to see him. They're not expecting to see him there. But John, who's a sensitive soul, John, who is intuitive, John, who is uh, affectionate, John recognizes Jesus. It is the Lord. And Peter? Peter's different from John. Peter's just gung-ho. Peter's out the boat swimming to shore before John can take another breath. It is the Lord, John says, and in he goes, Peter. And then John gets out and goes along with him. And the others are all left in the boat. You know, the Christian community, the Christian church is made up of all kinds of people. There's people like John, very perceptive, very intuitive, very empathetic, sympathetic. There's Peter, 
Peter is just a dynamo of action. And then there's the others. The ones who stay in the boat, because if they get out the boat, they'll lose the catch. If they don't stay, all these fish that they've just caught are going to get away. So they stay in the boat. While the other two are running to Jesus, they stay in the boat and manage the weight and slowly but surely get the boat to the shore where Jesus stands. You see, there's a place for everybody in the body of Christ. There's a place for all kinds and all types of people in the body of Christ. And most of us, most of us will just for all of our lives just keep keeping on. We'll do what we can. And God will use what we can do. In the bigger picture, God will use what we can do. We need the intuitive, spiritually minded John. We need the go-getting, high-powered Peter. But the church would not survive without the rest of us looking after the nets, tending to the fish, and bringing them to Jesus. I think there's one last thing that we see here. You know, there were periods when the disciples found themselves at sea in a storm, and Jesus came to them. And in the Bible, the storm on the ocean, the storm at sea, is often a picture of the troubles and trials and tribulations of this life. And now, after the resurrection, Jesus does not come to them at sea. He doesn't appear to them in the boat. He appears to them on the shore. Because from now on, you see, we are going to him. That's not to say he's not with us by the Holy Spirit, yes. But Jesus, in his resurrection, in his glory, is, if you will, on the shore. We are at sea. We are enduring the trials and disappointments, the tests of this life. And we are going to him. And in the end, the business, the business of being the people of God today is the business of those men on that boat, working hard to get, keep the fish on board their little boat until they get to the shore. And that shore is where Jesus is. That's where we're going. And when we get to the shore, we're going to find that Jesus has made preparations for us. Just as he had for them. Fish on the barbecue. The barbie, as the Australians say. It's fish is all ready, and he welcomes us to sit and eat with him. And I'd like to discuss this evening whether Jesus could eat in a, in a glorified body or not, on how he could eat with a glorified body, but I'm so grateful that I've run out of time and cannot tell you the disquisition that I had prepared for you on that subject. But you can ask me as you leave. 
and it will edify you, no doubt. But it seems to me as we, as we read this and as we come to the end of it this evening that here, here is a great picture of the authenticity of the story as the apostles report it, the, the authority of Jesus when he speaks his word it will accomplish what he intends. Church, don't, don't make, allow yourself to become so browbeaten by certain strands of evangelical thinking they leave you feeling devoid of energy because you're not doing enough to bring in the people of God into the kingdom or you're not seeing enough people converted by your testimony or witness. The devil is the discourager of the people of God and the devil is the accuser of the brethren. Rather, we must rest in the power of Christ's word to do its work. And we'll find the fish in the net. And when the day comes, we'll see Christ on the shore. And all that will matter is that we join him there to eat with him and enjoy his company forever. Father, we pray that you would excite our affections this evening for our Savior, and stimulate our expectations of that day when we shall go to him and be with him forever. In his strong name we pray. Amen.